Mitch and also from Dwayne. And, um, you know, Mitch could talk up your church like it's great because he's the pastor. Um, but Dwayne, who sort of doesn't have a dog in that fight, uh, has also spoken of you in very high terms and has said how loving of a community this was and how much you helped him. And so it was through Dwayne um, that I had the opportunity uh, to meet Mitch. And um, as Mitch said, we meet for, uh, together for something called spiritual direction. And um, I'm, quote, a spiritual director, but in some ways that's a misnomer. Because a spiritual director sounds like I'm telling Mitch or other people what to do, and that's not the case at all. Uh, the role of a spiritual director is really to help a person uh, listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So maybe a better term would be something like a spiritual companion, uh, a spiritual friend. Um, and so really it's just helping to encourage uh, and to see where a person is experiencing the life of Jesus um, in a way that's life-giving, and then maybe some ways that um, are challenges in a person's life and what God might be saying through each of those experiences. Um, I really got into spiritual direction out of desperation. Um, I've been in ministry for about 40 years. I'm a retired pastor with the um, Evangelical Free Church. I served... um, three churches in the 40 years. Uh, Two were in Chicago, and one was in Springfield, Illinois, our state capital here. Um, My wife and I always wanted to retire someplace warm, Um, but we have grandchildren, and our grandchildren are in southern Wisconsin, and so our grandchildren really trumped um, the weather, and we're just enjoying our grandchildren a great deal. We've been up there about five years. And uh, I have three grandchildren, um, a young man who's uh, becoming a a young man. Uh, Lincoln is uh, 15 years old, and uh, he used to be a legend in his own mind, um, but now he seems to be maturing, uh, which I'm very pleased to see. And then I also have uh, two granddaughters uh, that are twins, and they're about 12 years old. Um, So back to the um, spiritual direction thing. Um, I really faced a crisis in ministry after about 10 years in. I mean, it was probably the worst season of my life that I can ever recall. And I was fortunate enough to have uh, find a um, counselor who was very helpful. He was a former pastor. And after we were done counseling, I said, well, how do we maintain um, spiritual and emotional health and well-being? And this was years ago, probably like 30 years ago. He mentioned something called spiritual direction. I'd never heard of it before, and most evangelicals had not heard of it at that time. Uh, Now it's becoming much more popular, for which I am very pleased, uh, because for me it was a lifeline. When I moved from Springfield back to Chicago, I made a commitment to myself and to the Lord that I wouldn't do ministry alone, but rather um, I would make sure that I saw a spiritual director every month. And so it's, it's just something that has helped me a great deal. And I feel privileged to be able to um, pass that along to others. Um, as Mitch said, we're going to go through uh, and try to summarize um, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. Um, but before we do, I do want to wish you all... Happy New Year. Um, Now, you might think I'm a little bit confused, but actually today is the beginning of the Christian year. 
Um, you know, the secular world uh, marks time where New Year's Day begins the, the year. In the Christian calendar, Advent, the first day of Advent, which, as Mitch said, is today, uh, is really the beginning of the Christian year. And when we think of Advent, um, really, we think of a season of waiting. And I don't know about you, but sometimes <coughs> waiting for me is kind of difficult. Uh, and I have learned that there are two ways that you can wait. Uh, think of waiting for a train. You know, uh, if the train is late, maybe, or you're waiting and you're eager to go somewhere, you know, you can wait and keep looking at your watch and uh, tap your foot and be very anxious and, you know, is this train ever going to get here? Or you can wait um, in expectation and say, you know, this train is going to get me to the place that I've been longing to go for a long time and I just can't wait till it gets here. And really, that's um, what Advent is about. And uh, when we think of Advent, we're really thinking in three different uh, categories. We're thinking of waiting for the celebration of the birth of Jesus. That's, that's a, a wonderful event, and uh, it's such a grand event that it's appropriate that it marks the beginning of the year. Um, and as we wait for the celebration, we think of people who waited for millennia uh, until the coming of Jesus and uh, until waiting for the king to finally show up and arrive. But we also, as believers today, uh, wait for the second coming of Jesus. You know, the Bible says just as Jesus came physically the first time, he will come again. And I don't know about you, but as I look around, we, our world needs Jesus. Um, we live in a politically polarized um, a culture that sort of drifts and people are for themselves by and large. And so I just long, um, I long for Jesus to come back again and to make everything right. You know, you think of the injustice of the world and the people who suffer. And, um, and Jesus is going to turn all of that around. Incidentally, um, I don't know where you are politically, but the next election will not save us just as the last election did not save us, nor did the one before that save us. Um, we're really looking to be saved uh, by Jesus. And then lastly, uh, we wait as believers for the manifest presence of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is with us all the time. He's always here. He's here right now. But there's something um, in life to experience his manifest presence when Jesus um, makes himself known and he appears in real ways that we can sense him. And, you know, sometimes it's uh, experiences that cross over and we just know that had to be from God. In fact, um, on the way down here today, um, I was listening to uh, scripture on tape. And three times, I don't know how it happened, but I turned it off and three times the same verse just kept coming up. And I thought, okay, God, I think I got it. I think you want to talk to me this morning. And, um, and so sometimes the presence of Christ, his manifest presence, uh, just shows up. Um, but our task for today is to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to make a couple of observations as we go. And first of all, um, if you're familiar with the New Testament, and in particular uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, there are two two times when Jesus says similar material. One in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, 
And then um, the other one is in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. Uh, now, obviously, the Luke passage is much shorter. And Bible scholars um, have debates, and you know, Bible scholars like to argue a lot and have debate a lot. And so there's a debate on whether or not there are two separate sermons or just one sermon on the mount. Uh, some people will say, well, they're the same because teachers... Um, you know, uh, the person who uh, recorded Luke, Luke, who recorded um, Luke's gospel, just did more of a summary, and Matthew was more all-inclusive. Other people will say, no, they're two separate times. Um, you know, a lot of times teachers will like to say the same thing on different occasions. And if you look at the beginning of Luke chapter 6, it says Jesus spoke from a level plane. Um, and people who argue that it's the same sermon said, well, it's the level plane on top of a hill. So um, it's really not important if there are two or if there are one. The material is very similar, and it gives us um, some great teaching. But what's to be noted, I think, is Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the longest continuous discourse of Jesus. So if you have a red-letter Bible, you've got three chapters of uh, Jesus speaking, which is really um, quite profound. And what he compresses into that, I think, is truly um, the greatest sermon uh, ever preached. Uh, also, if you think of the Sermon on the Mount, it has what <coughs> I call, and many people call, a kingdom theme. It's what it's like to live in God's kingdom. It's what life is supposed to be like. Um, I was reared in a Greek Orthodox um, church uh, for the first 19 years of my life. And I came to know Christ in a personal way when I was about um, 19. And when I first came to know Christ, um, I was pretty much taught that the reason that you believe in Jesus is to go to heaven when you die. And that's a good reason. And if you believe in Jesus and have trust in him, I believe that that's uh, where you'll end up. But I felt like a lot of the teaching missed um, right now. Uh, and I really believe that Jesus came to bring transformation to life, not so that we have to wait for it in another world, but rather so that we could experience the reality of the king and living under the kingship of Jesus um, right now. And so um, it has a kingdom theme. Uh, John Stott has a... Uh, commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he calls it Christian Counterculture. And I love, the, I love that title because the Sermon on the Mount is so contrary and so um, culturally different. And according to... to um, oops, we went back here too far. Let me see if we can go back. Um, according to um, what Jesus is teaching, we are to be different from the world. You know, in the world, if somebody hurts you, what do you do? You get them back and maybe you double it up. And things just sort of escalate. Um, if you're in the world, the point of life is to get more toys. Um, and, you know, the old bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Um, we're taught to hoard. Jesus says uh, to live open-handedly. I mean, the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is so radically different from culture, it's remarkable. But the other thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that we're to be different from traditional religious communities. In, um, often, in a religious community, you know, 
the danger and the temptation for all of us, and whether you're in ministry or not, is to try to appear good. <laughs> and try to look good and only show people, you know, our good sides and even try to be better than other people and um, at least appear that way. And it's interesting to me that the people that Jesus was hardest on in the New Testament were who? Pharisees. Um, people who tried to sort of make themselves appear um, more than they were. And so as we go through um, the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see not only are we to be different from culture, but we're to be different from traditional <coughs> religious communities. So here's a common mistake. Um, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's sort of interesting. You know, Jesus does a lot of, especially in the first chapter, you've heard it said from people long ago, but I say to you. And then he gives examples. Um, and a lot of times what Christians have done is they looked at the Sermon on the Mount and thought Jesus is just giving a new set of laws. Um, but he's not. He's really giving examples of what he is saying, of the principle. And so the danger that we can come into if we see it as just a um, give Jesus giving new laws is that we miss this whole thing of having a transformed heart. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is teaching us not just about what we do, but about becoming a different kind of person. And the whole Christian experience of discipleship, once you come to know Christ, is learning how to become a different kind of person. Um, you know, Paul has a word for it, our, our new nature as opposed to our old nature, and there's all kinds of different ways to describe it. But the real miraculous part of coming into relationship with Jesus is having a transformed heart. And if we look at the Sermon on the Mount simply as um, a new set of rules, I will get in trouble. Like, for example, when Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Well, what if the guy doesn't want to go two miles? You say, well, Jesus told me, I've got to drag you along for the second mile. Um, and we get into all kinds of unusual things. And what Jesus is really telling us is how to apply the principle of really learning to love other people. Um, and so he gives us examples how to love. Now, um, I thank you for reading, by the way, uh, the context for the Sermon on the Mount. Um, as I've been studying in, on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, um, one of the people that have re has really helped me understand it better is uh, a fellow by the name of Dallas Willard, who died a little while ago. And um, what Dallas Willard said really sort of rocked my world, because years ago, I remember teaching this in 2001, and I taught, you know, the Beatitudes begin, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And I began by teaching, okay, you're supposed to be mourning today. And if you're mourning, something's not wrong. Some, something's not right. Because you're supposed to mourn over your sins. And then you're supposed to be meek. And so it's often taught, in fact, it's most often taught on the Beatitudes as a series of steps that you go through as a Christian. Dallas Willard pointed out in his writing and in his speaking that the Sermon on the Mount is given in a context. And to really understand the Beatitudes, you have to understand the context. So, for example, um, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
news about him spread all over Syria. Um, did I miss? News about him spread all over Syria. There's a little part missing. Um, and people brought to him. No, I'm sorry. It comes at the end. I was thinking of the list of this um, regions. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Is anybody here sick today? Kind of fighting through some health concerns? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Jesus is speaking um, to people who were sick. People uh, suffering various diseases, those suffering severe pain. I'm sure some of us have either physical or emotional pain. The demon-possessed, there are people that are oppressed, I believe, by wicked spirits. Those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So you have to understand that Jesus is speaking to people who are hurting. And the gospel always comes um, and always is an invitation um, to people who are sort of on the backside or the underside of humanity because we do all of these things to rate people by their function. You know, if you're a doctor, you're up here. If you're a janitor, you're down here. Um, where Jesus, all of that just changes. And Jesus wants to come close um, to people who are hurting. And I really also believe, um, and this is one of the reasons spiritual direction is important to me, is Jesus wants to take the broken parts of ourselves and the parts that we want to hide and bring them to the surface so that they can be healed. And so uh, the context of the Sermon on the Mount really just changed for me the way I understand the Beatitudes. Really, the Beatitudes are talking about who can be blessed. And during the time of Jesus, um, you know, after the Greek philosophers, people talk about how do you live the good life. And according to Jesus, that's what this, um, living in the kingdom really is. Conventional wisdom says if you're wealthy, if you're good looking, if you're healthy, you're blessed. Um, if you're not wealthy, if you're not good looking, you're cursed. <laughs> but Jesus challenges conventional wisdom. And he has biblical wisdom and says anyone who becomes part of God's kingdom can be blessed. So anyone with faith in Christ and anybody who comes to um, be part of God's kingdom can be blessed. And the key word here is makarios. It's a Greek word for blessed. Um, you don't have to know Greek. Uh, by the way, now you can say you know a little Greek because uh, I'm Greek. Um, and I'm little. Uh, but a lot of times people will translate it as happy. And I've even heard people call it the be happy attitudes. Have you ever heard that? That's a terrible translation. Jesus is not talking about being happy. Uh, Eugene Peterson, the fellow who translated the um, Bible into the message, uh, said he likes uh, the word holy luck for uh, the word blessed. But I found something that I think sort of captures um, the word blessed, and that's from a verse where Jesus says, uh, or excuse me, Paul says, the kingdom of God is, a, is not a matter of food and drink. It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so blessed people are people with peace, joy, um, and, and the Holy Spirit. Conventional wisdom says the wealthy are blessed. 
And I've known some wealthy people who are blessed and know Jesus and live a great life. I've known people who are wealthy that are miserable. You probably do too. Um, people say, you know, if you have a great house. In fact, um, I live near Lake Geneva. I live in Williams Bay, right by Lake Geneva. I don't know if you heard this, it was in the paper the other day, that uh, Dre House, a fellow, a very wealthy guy from Chicago, owned a home, very large home, on Lake Geneva, and put it up for sale for a record $39 million. And within three weeks, it has an offer on it. Um, unbelievable. But so people would walk by that and say, oh, they're blessed. Or if you've been on the boat tour for Lake Geneva, the way they give it to you is all these people are blessed. And some of them are, but probably some of them are not. Um, but Jesus says the poor can be blessed. And, you know, um, I know you're serving uh, in a foreign country, and uh, I've been in places like Pakistan and Haiti. And you see, I've met some really poor people. In fact, I thought I knew poverty from Chicago. I met some really poor people who are really genuinely, deeply joyful and have peace and hope and love. Um, you know, we say the healthy can be blessed. Jesus says the sick can be blessed. Um, this summer, I was on a golf course um, at a particular hole, um, helping out with the people for this charitable event. And a guy came through on a golf cart, and um, he had his wheelchair in the back. He wasn't golfing. He was with his um, family and his work associates. He was probably the most blessed guy I met that day. I mean, there was a joy of God that just exuded from him that was just beautiful. Um, we say the fit can be blessed, and they can. Um, and Jesus says the fat can be blessed. You know, in this culture, if you're fat, um, that's being cursed. And it's terrible. I think, you know, the way fat, we have sort of this prejudice against fat people. And Jesus says, doesn't matter, you can be blessed. The happy, um, the sad can be pressed. You, you can be grieving and really know the love and the tenderness of God. So, what we want to do is listen uh, and review the Sermon on the Mount. And what I'm going to ask you to do is, um, there's going to be a lot of information, but don't sort of get hung up on the information. Ask the Lord um, to really speak to you today through the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Bible is just not meant only for information, um, but really for transformation of the heart. So we're going to just pause now and ask God to, to speak to us. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be here this morning on this particular day with this particular group of people. And we pray, Father, that you would <coughs> open up, not only open up our minds, but open up our hearts. Thank you that you are present, and we pray that you would be manifestly present as we review your words. Lord, thank you for this time, and help us to be open. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who hunger, and uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or his sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, will be answerable to the court, but whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go be reconciled to them, and then come offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Or you may be turned over to the judge, and the judge may turn you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality causes her to become a victim of adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. 
But I say to you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be careful not to do your righteousness before others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets to be honored by others. But truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the streets to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. For the pagans run after all these things and your father knows that you need them. I need to go back here. I think I forgot something. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you, not even Solomon was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about your life. For to, or don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son... asks for bread? Would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, will not your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. 
Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, (coughs) you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, a good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who who hears my words Therefore, everyone who hears my words and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on a rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. There it is, the Sermon on the Mount. Greatest sermon ever preached. And uh, it is really meant, again, for our transformation. There's so many parts of that that focus on our relationship to God um, rather than simply the things that we do. Uh, Because a relationship with God really begins by receiving God's love to us in Jesus Christ. And so many of us, I think, often have been hurt as children or even adults, and then we push away love and we harden our hearts. And what God is doing is, um, come to me, all who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. And so um, I'd like to close this time just um, with a brief meditation. And maybe you could ask uh, the Lord if there was a part of this message um, that he really wants you to grab hold of. Maybe about trust. Maybe about generosity. Maybe about giving up the need to impress other people. Could be one of many things. Father, we thank you that you're not only teacher, 
you're not only Savior, but you're also our King. I pray, Father, that you would teach us to live in your kingdom, that you would teach us how to become the kind of people that live out the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Thank you for your desire to bring transformation into our life, not just behavior modification. And Father, might we become the kind of people that are a city on a hill. And I pray, Father, for this gathering of believers here, that as they continue to unite together to follow Jesus, um, that you would make them fruitful, that they would have great joy and delight in the Spirit of God, um, that the key metric would not be you know, numbers in, of people in chairs, um, but it would be transformed hearts. Uh, thank you, Father, for this time, and I thank you for this gathering of believers. Amen.